1 John chapter 1. Let me pray. We'll get started. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this afternoon. We're thankful because it's a day that according to your word, you, you made it. Um, this day belongs to you. God, help us to have the perspective now that this is not our day, this is not our time, but this is your day and this is your time. This is not our word, this is your word. This is not our body, it's your body. These are not our hearts, it is your heart, God. We, we need you, we're so needy for you. Uh, we need you to do a work in us and through us if we're to understand these things that are from you that otherwise we, we just will not apprehend, we will not comprehend. So by your Holy Spirit, God, we ask that you would speak even past our ears and, and right to our hearts this afternoon. The truth that is to be found in this letter that John wrote centuries ago, God, bring that truth to bear on our soul today. We pray that the next weeks as we're going through this, this study, that we would come out on the other side at the end of this, knowing your word and knowing your purpose and your intention through uh, the beloved disciple John. That the truth would become our truth, that we would accept it, not only accept it, but believe it and embrace it and love it. So do this good work in us, God, and through us. We're, we're dependent, as always, on your grace. So we love you. We're thankful for this cool place to meet, to be together as friends, and to sit under your holy word. We give you praise and honor in the exalted name of your Son. His name is Jesus. Amen. Amen. First John chapter 1, only four verses today. That's different. We're used to going through like 75 verses lately. Um, so now we'll be going through four verses. And, and actually, the verses that we're going to go through today, we're going to go through next week as well. So this is really going to be a, more of an introduction to the book of First John. And we're going to see, because John is going to get right to it in his first four verses, he's going to introduce what he's going to talk about the rest of the book. So we want to make sure that we get that. But then next week, we're going to really pull apart um, what he is saying in each of these four, uh, four verses. But we're going, to, we're going to answer three questions today. This is what I, I would like us to work through. So if you're taking notes, you can write these down. The first thing is I want to answer the question, what is unique about this book of 1 John? This is a very unique book in your Bible. And so we want to answer that question. What is it that makes it different and sets it apart from other books in your Bible? The second question is what is the, what is the context Okay, that John is, is writing into that's leading to the concern that he has. So he is very concerned. We're going to get that. And he's concerned for a reason because this context that he is living in and writing to, there's, there's some significant issues that he wants to speak truth into. So what is that context? What is that concern that he has? And then finally, what is, what is his message? What is his purpose? What is it that we can expect him to be talking about? And what is his purpose with these friends that he's writing to? Because that's going to be his purpose and his intention as we read his words today and as God continues to work through his word and, uh, and speak to us. So first question. What is it that is unique about 1 John? It's actually unique in several different ways. Compared to... Uh, Paul's writings in the New Testament, John is very different. Um, Paul, when he writes, has a very logical, 
a progressive order to things and he'll make these these doctrinal assertions and he'll kind of have these building blocks that he'll set out and so this is a and then a leads to b and a leads to c and if you track it you can follow his logical biblical line of thought when he's trying to communicate something um, and, and there isn't that same neat logical order in John's style of writing in his gospel account, but especially here in this first letter that he writes. It ends up being more a, a collection of thoughts, is what we read. So it can appear random sometimes, because he, can, he sort of jumps all over the place. I'm, I'm reading over ten different commentaries as I'm going through this book, and, and not one of them has the same outline that outlines what he's doing in this book. Because it can be sort of confusing. It's more of a, it's more of a collection of thoughts that he's giving. So uh, imagine First John being like this. Imagine you're, you're sitting around a campfire with John. Okay, imagine that you're sitting around a campfire, and John is across from you, and he's pouring out his heart. He's pouring out his heart. Okay, I've got a couple hours with you. Um, this may be, not be neat and, and tidy, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what I think you need to know right now. And so you're going to kind of see that that is what he is doing as he's, as he's writing through this. Um, in addition, and we'll look at this now, there, there, is something, there is something missing in 1 John that we find in almost every other book of the New Testament. So there's something missing that makes it unique. And then there's also something that is peculiar to the book of 1 John that we don't find in any of the other books. So first, let's look at what's missing now as we're trying to understand what is unique about this book of, of 1 John. What do we find in 1 John that we do not find in other New Testament books? And the answer is this. Uh, 1 John joins the book of Hebrews as the only two books in your New Testament that do not have the traditional greeting of the day. Every other book is going to have a greeting, and in that greeting the author and the audience are identified. So the, the guy who's writing it says, okay, this is who I am. And then he says, and I'm writing to these people and these are my, my audience. That doesn't happen in the book of 1 John. He, does, he doesn't identify neither one of those. Though tradition tells us that he was probably writing to um, churches that were in the area of Ephesus um, in Asia Minor. We'll look at more of that in weeks to come. Um, it, was, it was most likely, as all the letters of your New Testament, it was probably intended for a specific people at first, and then it was meant to be circulated among all the churches, like all of these books were, but we just don't know for certain where this book actually started. Now, while it's anonymous, in other words, the author doesn't name himself, uh, we have really good reason to believe that the early church fathers got it right when they put 1 John at the top of this book uh, for three different reasons. First, it was obviously written by someone who is very close to Jesus. We see that in the very first verse. Someone who saw him and knew him and even touched him. It was written by somebody who was very close to Jesus, which narrows it down. Tradition tells us that it was John. So the word of the day in the first and second century was, yeah, we, we know you know, we watched him write it. John wrote this book. But as well, when you follow the style 
of this book. The style is almost identical to the style of the fourth gospel account, which we know to be written by the Apostle John. So it was written by John. He's called in, uh, in the gospel according to John, he's called the beloved disciple. The one who wrote this book, 1 John, was Jesus' best friend. He was BFF to Jesus. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus loved all of his disciples. Jesus loved everybody. He loved all of his disciples. But then he had an inner three, Peter, James, and John, who he showed particular affection to, who were with him during the most significant times of his ministry, who had a sort of backstage pass, if you will, to his ministry. And then of those three, it is John who even rises above them as being in even a more significant relationship with Jesus. Okay, we read that in the, during the Last Supper, you've seen in the picture, but it is, it is John who is reclining right next to Jesus. He rides shotgun with Jesus throughout his whole ministry. He's always right next to Jesus. Um, he, he goes and witnesses Jesus sweating blood. When he is in the garden the night before he is crucified. John sticks around when Jesus is being crucified and remains at the foot of the cross. And you remember what Jesus tells him to do. Jesus entrusts John, his best friend, with caring for his mother. He says, I'm going to be gone now and I want you to take care of, I want you to take care of Mary. As well, John is the first one who gets to the empty tomb and goes inside. Actually, it's funny when you read the account. Him and Peter start off, and Peter's ahead, and then John passes him. So I guess he was fast. And John, we also believe, is the only of the, one of the 12 disciples whose life was spared from persecution, who didn't die um, a persecution death. So John was in close and tight with Jesus. So he is very qualified He's very, qual very qualified to sit around the, the campfire and to pour out his heart in regards to Jesus and the gospel. Now before we move on to what's um, distinct, now that's what's, what was missing, but now we're going to talk about what's distinct about this book. I, I want to do a, a short, actually an extensive here, kind of just a parenthesis um, a, an observation that I want to make in light of the first couple verses and what John says. So let's read these two verses and then we'll move on with the outline we're trying to follow. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. So he's, he's emphatically saying in these first couple verses that what I'm telling you and what I'm sharing with you is deeply personal to me. This is not a story that I heard second-hand or third-hand. I am telling you things that I have seen with my own eyes, that I have heard in person, that I have grasped. I am telling you about Jesus whom I lived with and walked with and even touched. And I think at least in part, 
Next week when we pull apart these verses, we'll look at another thing I think John is doing in these first few verses. But I think at least in part, John is establishing credibility with his listeners. He's establishing his credibility. He's saying, I saw Jesus, I knew Jesus, I touched Jesus. Listen to what I'm saying. That's what he's trying to say. Listen to me. I'm a faithful witness. I'm testifying. I'm proclaiming things that I have seen with my own eyes. And he's trying to establish credibility, we're going to find out later, in a community where he has probably lost credibility because false teachers have come in and have screwed up everything that he taught. So he comes in and starts like Paul did on many occasions and says, this is why you should listen to me. Galatians chapter 1, 11, and 12. This is how Paul said it. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me, it is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, listen to me. This is not some story from man. This is from Jesus. John is saying... In verse 1, 2, and 3, listen to me because this is what Jesus has said. So your, your New Testament writers, just like the writers in the Old Testament or the prophets, they spoke the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed, which means that God was speaking to and through them. Or 2 Peter 1.21 says that, that these words that you read here, that you're going to read in John, for example, these words were not produced by the will of man. But rather, men spoke. They were God's words. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what John is trying to establish here. He's going to pour out his heart and he's saying, Listen to me. These words are not John's words. These words are from God. I am being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So a couple points in regards to that. An encouragement to all of us. The first one, listen to God's word. Very simply, that's what John is saying right off the bat. Listen to God's word. We might need, today, when God's word isn't necessarily valued highly by everyone around us, we need the credibility and the authority of God's word constantly reestablished for us. We should listen to God's word. Listen to the apostles. Listen to the prophets. Listen to your Bible. Read it, understand it, believe it, and do what it says. But the second point, not only listen to God's word, but listen to God's appointed means for teaching you the word of God. In this case, it was John teaching these believers at Ephesus. So listen to God's word. I'm, I'm trying to prom I want to promote that. Read God's word. Be in God's word. Read the Bible. Memorize the Bible. Understand that this has authority in your life. But I also want to say, as John is saying here, listen to me, I also want to say, also pay attention to and be thankful for 
and listen to the means that God has appointed in your life today to help you in understanding what God's Word says. The Holy Spirit is your primary teacher. And if you had no other teachers, no other books, no other good blogs, no other sermons, if you had none of those things and you were on a deserted island, you'd be okay. If all you have was you and your Bible, you would be okay. Because the Holy Spirit is your primary teacher. But the Holy Spirit as our primary teacher does not negate the importance of Teaching from God's Word. And not only teaching from God's Word, but the role that most of us, or all of us in some way or another, are in humble learning from God's Word. The kind of learning that comes when you're in your bedroom by yourself, you, the Holy Spirit, and your Bible, and the kind of learning that happens when you're with others or you're listening to teaching and the Holy Spirit is moving and working and enlightening your heart to see and understand and feel what the Word of God is teaching. So this is a principle in the New Testament. The New Testament, there is instruction the, the teachers are to be surfaced and they're to be raised up and they are supposed to teach. Not everybody, but some are to be teachers. And then there is instruction for those who are called to be teachers. There is instruction for them to teach or to preach or to write books or to write articles or, or whatever it is. Whoever has been gifted to teach the word of God. And then there is also many, much instruction in the New Testament that we are to listen to that instruction, that we are to heed that instruction, that we are to be thankful for and submit to the means that God puts in our life to help us through the Holy Spirit to understand what His Word is saying. Hebrews 13, verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who, what? Taught you the word of God. And it goes on, it says, Watch them and imitate them and follow their example. It's like the heart that is in Proverbs when, when Solomon is talking to his sons and he's saying, Listen to me. Listen to me. I know you have scripture, but listen to me. Understand what I'm saying. What is he doing? He's teaching them. It's what Paul means when he challenges Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Preach the word. Some are preachers and teachers. You've been given a portion of the Holy Spirit to understand God's word clearly and to communicate God's word clearly. And you're supposed to do something with that, Timothy. And so you need to go out in whatever season, no matter what's happening, and you need to be preaching God's word. Proverbs 5.1 says, My son... Be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. So God has given us the Bible. And God has given us teachers. So the appeal is read your Bible more. It's really simple. Read your Bible more and listen to good teachers. As your pastor, I want, to, I want to encourage you to do that. And I'm not talking necessarily about listening to me. I mean, you're already here. So you are doing that. There's other good teaching. Listen to good teaching. Join a church. If, if you're not a member of a church, join a church. That is God's primary means 
for bringing you sound teaching is through his church. Not through a hundred different churches or ten different churches that you like to go to, but through a church. Through a people that you're committed to, through authority that you're in submission to, sitting under teaching consistently with a body of people. So do that and listen to good teaching. How else do you listen to good teaching? I want to encourage you to read books. Read books. Read books that have been written by men who have been given an extra portion of the Holy Spirit in regards to clearly understanding God's Word and communicating God's Word. Read books that have been written by these men and women that God has given us throughout history that you may understand what God is saying better. Read books. Read recommended books. Not just any book. Right, I've said this a hundred times. Going to a, a bookstore and looking for a book, is, is a good book today is, is like trying to find a needle in a haystack. So it's good to have books that have been recommended to you by people that you trust. Saying, read this book. Otherwise, you may get a book that sounds good and it's terrible. Going to a Christian bookstore, it's a lot like putting a quarter in one of those machines with a mechanical arm. Right? There's a Rolex in there. You can see it, but there's, it's surrounded by like 300 knockoff Beanie Babies. And the odds of you getting the Rolex are, are unlikely. So too, you go to a Christian bookstore, you, you might walk out with a John Piper book, but most likely you're going home with a Joel Osteen bobblehead. <laughs> or like a pair of Rob Bell glasses, something like that. You're not going to go home with what you, what you need. So be careful. Make sure that, that what you're reading and what you're putting in your mind has been, been recommended to you. So, so read your Bible first. Read it foundationally. Read it primarily. You can read your Bible with no skeptics guard up, which is how you do need to read books that way. So read your Bible in that way, but as well, read books that will be helpful for you in understanding God's Word. And then the flip side of that, the flip side to listen to good teachers is don't presume to be a teacher yourself. And this really gets at what stood out to me as very relevant for us today. Listen to good teachers John is saying, you can trust me. I'm a good teacher. I know Jesus. My credibility here. Listen to me. Listen to good teachers. The flip side of that, church, do not presume to be a teacher. Do not presume to be a teacher. James 3.1 Not many of you should become teachers. My brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Because incidentally, I think today, one of the reasons why more Christians don't read, whether it's their Bible or books about the Bible, one of the reasons Christians don't do that, one of the reasons Christians don't commit to and submit to a church is because everybody's a teacher. There's an attitude that I'm a teacher. I understand all of this. I get this. I know this. 
I don't need to submit to anything. I don't need to be under good teaching. I don't need to read a book about that. I have this down. It's interesting how that shifted because there, there used to be a time where hardly anybody was confident with God's word. Hardly anybody was confident with God's word. Everyone was dependent on a priest. Everyone. The culture in mass was dependent on a priest and, and, and he alone could interpret and understand God's word so we were dependent on him. It's what kept the Bible from being translated into a common language for centuries. And people needed to understand that, no, you have the Holy Spirit. And he will teach you, 1 Corinthians 2.12, and he will enlighten you to things that are spiritually discerned. And people need to understand the, the priesthood of believers. That in that sense, we're all priests and we can all understand God's word. But now, now we have like the priesthood of believers gone wild. And now everybody is perhaps even overconfident with their understanding, what they think it is of God's word. And everybody's a teacher. Have you been appointed a teacher? Have you been tested as a teacher? Have you been trained as a teacher? Or are you a self-appointed teacher? Like Joseph Smith. Or have you been appointed? Have you been tested? Have you been surfaced? Have you been approved by other teachers? Or do you presume to be a teacher? Let me break that down so that none of you are saying, well, no, I don't stand behind a pulpit and I don't teach a club. But do you teach? Be careful. Perhaps James 3.1, we could substitute, not many of you should presume to blog. You see this mentality where everybody today has something to say. Everybody has something important to say. Everybody has an understanding of something that nobody else does. And everybody wants to get it out there. What's happening is people are presuming to be teachers. Be careful. Be careful that your humble learning and your humble listening doesn't turn into arrogant teaching because you will be judged more strictly. Not many of you should presume to blog. Not many of you should presume to preach through status updates. Not many of you should presume to, to opinionate. Not many of you should presume to interject. Be slow to speak. Be quick to listen. Our culture is quick to speak, slow to listen. My encouragement to you would be, as John is encouraging his audience right now, what is he saying? He's saying, listen to me. My encouragement to you would be, listen to God's word. Listen to good, faithful teaching. And be careful, do not presume to be a teacher. So John here establishes himself. He establishes himself, which he shouldn't have to do, but he does, to his, to his audience who are being bamboozled by self-appointed false teachers who are being led astray. And he's coming in and establishing himself, saying, listen to me. So that's the end of that little parenthesis. There I am trying to establish credibility for 
sound teachers in commending them to you. Let's move on with what's unique about this book. We talked about what's missing, the typical greeting, but what do we find in the book of 1 John that we don't find, that we don't find in many of the books in the, in the New Testament? If you have an open look, chapter 2, verse 1, look at this phrase, my little children. My little children. You can see it again in verse 18 of chapter 2. He says, children, again. We see it in chapter 4, verse 4. Same word, technion, little children. And then again at the very end of the book, chapter 5, verse 21, little children. He's saying this over and over and over again, this term of endearment. He feels like he is their father. These are like his spiritual children. They came to know Jesus, most likely under his ministry. He deeply loves them and cares about them. When he is writing this letter, he is writing to them as if they are his own kids. And he calls them that over and over and over again, my little children. What you find that's very peculiar in this book compared to other books in the New Testament is the affection that the author has for his audience. He is pouring out his heart to people he dearly, dearly loves. The other word, chapter 2, verse 7, beloved. We see it again in chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved. Chapter 4, verse 1, beloved. It shows up like seven times in this book. The only other place it shows up that many times is the book of Romans, which is three times the length of the book of 1 John. So it is packed, what I want you to see, it is packed with this affectionate language. Okay, John is writing to these, this, this, his audience are, are people that he dearly loves. Most likely a lot of them are, are younger Christians. They're, they're probably newer Christians. The church isn't even that old. By the time this is being written, Jesus has only been dead and resurrected a few decades. And he's writing to them and seeing that they're in trouble. And he wants them to hear. He wants them to hear in his, in his voice, his compassion, his concern. He wants that tone to be, to be clear to them. And so we need to keep that in mind when we're reading through 1 John. The love that the author has for his people. That's why he's telling them these things. That's what's unique about the book. Now let's look at the, the context and his concern. Well, why is he talking to them this way? Why is it that he is so concerned for them? Why does he think that his kids are, are in trouble? There's a few different things that, that come out in this book. One is John is going to talk a lot about the world. He talks about the world for us as Christians. Um, and he talks about the world as a sort of counter-Christ culture that threatens to undo Christians. So, so, so be aware of the world that you live in because it will, with its desires and, and what looks good to you that would not be pleasing to God, it, it threatens to, to pull you away from Christ. It's counter Christ. And so he, he talks a lot about the world, the context that they're in. 
And he's positive. I mean, he says, listen, he says, you've overcome the world. He's going to say that. You've overcome the world. I mean, through Jesus, you're going you're to make it through this. You've overcome the world. And he also says that the world is doomed. It's passing away. Okay, I don't want to give it too much power here is what he's saying when he writes. But he's also saying, do not, though, and it would be the same for us today, do not give the world and its desires a foothold in your life where you begin to treasure the things of the world more than you treasure Jesus. That's his concern in this world that they live in. That's why in chapter 2, verse 15, he says, do not love the world or the things of this world. But that's not his only concern. That's kind of his broad concern is you're in this world. But now in this world, you have false teachers. That's another theme that's going to come up throughout. We're going to learn that there were false teachers who had come in just as was predicted and are tearing apart the church with heresy. They're teaching things about God and about Jesus that are not true. Acts chapter 20, verse 29 through 30, Paul says this to the the pastors in Ephesus. And it's very likely that it's those same people in Ephesus that John is writing to here. And you remember Paul's prediction. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And we pick up pieces throughout this book that give us insight into what these false teachers were teaching. Probably most significant, they were denying that Jesus was the Savior. They were denying that Jesus came in the flesh as a man and lived perfectly and died perfectly in the place of sinners. They completely denied that. The reason they denied that, to break it down even more, Paul's concerns. So you're living in this world, and from this world there are false teachers among you. And then we also see that, and know historically, that the, the dominant philosophy of the day was called Gnosticism. It was rampant. And this kind of thinking called Gnosticism was like the windshield that everybody was looking through. It was their worldview. And so you'll see John speaking to that in his gospel account and also in 1 John. And here's what their philosophy boiled down to. Everything spiritual is good and everything material is evil. So it was all about trying to live this this transcendent life where you kind of rise above and beyond everything that is material or physical and all matter and and live sort of in, in the clouds. In particular, they thought that the body, right, physical matter, was pure evil. And so they wanted, again, to sort of spiritually rise above and rise out of their, of their body. And they spent their whole life, committed Gnostics, spent their whole life trying to attain this sort of transcendent life where they were spiritually engaged and materially disengaged. And so everything was about the Spirit. And in order to to do that, it was very confusing. 
You, you had to attain special knowledge. That's why Gnostics comes from Gnosis, which means knowledge. You, they believed that the only way that you could be freed from this, this, this body, this prison, before physical death, is you had to attain this special knowledge. Then when you would corner them and ask them what that knowledge was, they couldn't give a straight answer. But it, regarded, it involved a lot of time and, and dedication and energy and, and, and teaching and, and, and to be under training. And all of these things they take. And you had to commit your whole life to it in order to get this spiritual knowledge so that you could be freed from this evil body. So you see where that led in terms of Christianity. They denied the incarnation. They denied, I mean, how could Jesus, they would say, how could God, how could our Savior come and take on flesh? Because flesh is evil. They didn't understand that God created the body. Body and the soul. And so they denied that Jesus came in the flesh, thereby denying him as Savior. So you hear John speak to that in his gospel, John 1.14. This is why he said, And the Word became flesh. The Word, the Logos, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It doesn't take John long in 1 John. In verse 1, he says, The Word, Jesus, who is from the beginning, that we touched. He's making it clear. Jesus was God. Jesus was a man. He defends it fiercely in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. What's he doing? He's responding to the false teachers. He's responding to the heresy that is all around these people that he loves and cares about by saying, no, that is not the truth. This is the truth. Listen to me. This is the truth. And so like us today, like us today in the culture we live in, heresy is popular. Heresy is popular. False teaching in the church is popular. In the first century, within decades, as predicted, of Jesus' ascension into heaven, false teaching was rampant in the church. That is why most of your New Testament letters were written. They were written to churches to combat false teaching, to assert the truth when there were teachers who were promoting heresy. So it was very popular. It was popular for good old Christians to entertain this teaching, to invite them to come into the church and to teach us about Gnosticism and teach us some of the truths of your philosophy and your religion, and let's see how we can integrate that into what we're teaching. And so then you'll have ages and seasons and centuries that will go by where there is always heresy and there is always false teaching, but it won't necessarily be real popular. Now, we live now in the 21st century where heresy and false teaching 
about the Bible is popular. Not what we, we see heresy, we, we see false teaching, we can identify the false teaching, and we know where the false teaching is, and we know to stay away from it, and it's kind of a minority group, and it's kind of a small group, and don't buy their books, and don't go to their conferences, but we stay away from them, and there's just kind of this understanding among Christians, this is truth, this is right teaching, this is orthodoxy, and this is heresy, this is false, and we rise up against that. That is not The culture we live in. The culture we live in says that this heretical teaching, it's actually kind of fun and interesting and helpful and popular. And so there are are tremendous truths in the Bible that are under attack, not from outside the church, but from inside the church today. One of which is universalism. You need to understand that, that universalism, the teaching that everyone in the end, that everyone will be saved. And therefore, if everyone will be saved, that trickles down and affects so much and undermines so much truth in your Bible. Therefore, Jesus did not come to save sinners. He did not come to to die for people. He did not come to die in the place of sinful human beings. All of those truths come under attack now when we misunderstand the atonement and God's sacrifice through Jesus for His people. And yet universalism, it's very popular today. And it's just, it's just acceptable. You can go to a Christian bookstore and you can, you can buy books on it. See, you see what I'm saying? It's accepted. It's popular. We're, we're playing with fire. And that is the same culture that John is writing into. It's things that are totally untrue, totally unbiblical. Let's just throw some Bible verses in there. Take them completely out of context. It's a dangerous culture we live in. So John is appealing to them. And he will appeal to us through his word. By the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't listen to the false teaching. It's false. Listen to God's word. So no wonder he's so concerned for for his people. His children are right in the middle of this. Let's read the rest of these first few verses and now see. So what's he going to do about it? We understand the context. We understand the concern. We understand the problem. So now let's get an idea. What's his remedy? What is John going to say to them? Start again at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Who is he talking about? Who is this that he has seen, that he has known, that he has touched? Jesus. I love it. He just gets right into it. He doesn't even say hello. The first word of his letter is that. Who starts a letter that way? That. 
Well, what is the that? That which I have seen, which I have heard with my own ears, which I have grasped with my mind, with my heart, that I have touched. The eternal life was from the beginning. Jesus, that was made manifest, became a man. Him, I'm testifying to you about Him. I'm proclaiming Him to you. Jesus, the gospel. Because that's going to be the message of my letter. Let me get that right out in the beginning. What I have seen and heard, that I am going to proclaim to you. That's his remedy. That is what the church needs, he decides. They need to have Jesus proclaimed. He's saying, my little children, you, you are in a mess. You're in a mess. And there are people against you that are outside the church. There are, are false teachers that are against you from inside the church. And he says, let me proclaim to you what I have seen and heard. Let me talk to you about Jesus. Let me preach to you again the gospel. What's his hope in that? Verse 3 and 4. So that, I'm going to proclaim to you Jesus so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. She so says, I'm going to bring Jesus to you. I'm going to preach the Gospel to you. When you... You understand the gospel and you know Jesus. That's going to lead to fellowship. If you love Jesus and love the gospel, you're going to have fellowship with God. And you're going to have fellowship with one another. And if you have that fellowship with God, if you have that fellowship with one another, it will bring great joy to our life. Great joy. She says, that's my answer. That's my remedy. Dear children, little children, my beloved, in the middle of this world with these false teachers and these false philosophies and this popular heresy, and many are being led astray, yet people were on your boards and they were your pastors and they were your deacons. Now they've proved to be heretics and they've left the church and you're, just, you're in a big mess. I, I want to proclaim to you what I've seen and heard. I want to tell you about Jesus. I want to tell you about Jesus so that you may have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another that our joy may be complete. So he says he's writing. He's writing to them. And I hope that this happens for us. Because I'm writing this to you so that you can have fellowship with God and so that your joy may be complete. So that you can become the happiest people on earth. But that will only happen, back up, back up, if I proclaim to you what I've seen and heard. And that's what our study of First John is going to be. So it's coming out of the darkness. It's going to be looking at the, the foundation and the source of this great fellowship that we have, which is the gospel.
And then understanding this fellowship that we have with God. What does that mean to have fellowship with God? What does that mean to have fellowship with one another? He calls it walking in the light. He calls it not sinning. He calls it sanctification. He calls it holiness. What does this fellowship with God and, and one another look like? And how is that fellowship the bedrock of what should make us the most joyful people in the entire world? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for everything that you've given us through Jesus. Thank you for the, the endless gifts that we have. God, thank you for the salvation that you've brought to us, that we were, that we were lost and uh, we were trying to get to you um, apart from you on our own and by our own strength and by being religious or being good people or going through motions. God, thank you that we are not saved by these things because we understand we cannot be saved by these things. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, God, that the life that you require of us rightfully and we cannot live, that that life has been supplied through Jesus. Thank you, God, that that he came and he was tempted in every way, and just like we are, but the difference was he never sinned. He was always pleasing to you. He always honored you. He always glorified you. And yet he took a death that he didn't deserve because he died in our place. So he lived a life that we should live and died the death that we deserve. God, we're so grateful for these things. Thank you for your great plan of salvation and how you've rescued us. As we come to a time of communion now, God, and we eat bread and drink this juice, remembering the sacrifice of your Son, will you even now incline our hearts toward you? Move in our hearts, cause us to look upon you and Jesus with great joy and happiness and satisfaction. That no matter what we're discouraged about right now, no matter what we're anxious about right now, that all of those other emotions would be completely and totally swallowed up in joy. That they would be overwhelmed and overtaken by joy in you and the truth that you are a God who saves sinners. So we give you all praise and glory and honor as the only one worthy of such things. And we pray this in the great name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.